We are ready to go when you are. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the November 29, 2023 QPSC. This is the Quality Committee of the Board. Let's start off with a roll call, please. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Esteem. Here. Trustee Stein is excused, but we do have a form. Thank you. Look, we always start with the preamble, the purpose of the QPSC. The QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. That's why we're here. We now usually go into public comment. We're going to go into public comment, and I'm going to make a few comments on public comment. <laughs> trying to be fun. Just as a reminder, the agenda has a full and clear instructions for how to sign up for public comment. In short, public comment, request for it needs to be made prior to the meeting. I'll leave uh, a two-minute opening if there's anyone. I currently have 13 on the docket. Is that right, Madam Clerk? Correct. Is there anyone in the audience who would like their name added to the public comment? Uh, can you give your names to the clerk? Uh, G-O-Y-A-L. Kristen Brogan, R-U-G-H-A-D. Another one? Amy, H-E-E-N-E-Y. One more time. Amy, H-E-E-N-E-Y. Brianna, R-A-Y-Y-A-N-E. I, I, uh, thank you, Trustee Esteem. I open that up to, um, Anyone in the Zoom audience? I can't see everybody, Madam Clerk or Council. Anyone else in the audience to add their name? Yes. Um, Your name's already on the list. Oh, cool. Nadia Gaber. Gaber, Nadia. Um, what's your name? Kadelba. Uh, Got it. Anything left in the open? No. Nope. I, I, I don't mean, see any hands up. Given that, we're going to close invitation for public comment. Our count is at 18. We're going oh, to I'm sorry, Trustee Bouquet. Yes, I, I got a text from Veronica Perez Arana, who I assume is to be out Apologies for interrupting. You're not interrupting your guidance. So that's uh, 16, 19. That's effectively 20. Uh, uh, we're, we're going to kind of limit our time here. So the allocation is going to be 90 seconds per public commentary. You will be given a 30-second warning during your comment. Other comments on public comment, and then I'll be, be reading to you. As a reminder, this Board of Trustees welcomes public comment. This board, board has always offered public comment as, as a space for those wanting to share their perspectives on issues related to our organization. It is our onus as trustees to receive all perspectives with grace and respect. We ask for grace and respect amongst all the commentators as well. Our purpose as trustees is to gather data so that we may be best informed to guide our organization. Notes for the, for the speakers. Number one, you need to officially inform the clerk. There are instructions on that. We've just gone through that exercise. The count is about 19. Two, 
Public comment can be made for specific agenda items or for non-agendized items. It's my understanding these are non-agendized item comments. Um, three, uh, I've given the time limitations, which is a function of how many people are speaking, 90 seconds. You will be given a warning at 30 seconds to go. Please I'm on be respectful call. of that time. It is accepted practice to not respond directly to public comments made within the same meeting. This is general public practice. Furthermore, no action will be made related to comments unless this, is, unless this has been previously agendized on the agenda. And this is not the case. This is in keeping with public practice law. So given that, we're going to go into public comment. Again, the guidance is respect for each other. And we're going to go. We're going to go backwards from the list that was just given to me. So I'll, I'll list four in a row so you guys can get ready. Guys and gals can get ready or people can get ready. And then we'll go from there. We'll go with Veronica Perez first. Then Cabelva, apologies. If I, if, then we will go with Gabor. Uh, then Rayana. That, that's our first four. Uh, there is a, a, a podium right here. We ha now have a microphone so that the audience should be able to hear. So Veronica, uh, actually, is Veronica in Zoom? Yes. Veronica, hi. You see her? I, I see her. Can you hear me? Yes. Can we, can we, yeah, we can we tune up. Veronica, you're, you're lead off. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now, Veronica. Veronica, 90 seconds and you'll be given a 30 second warning. Is that acceptable? Yes. Go for it, Veronica. I am a registered nurse at the Hayward Wellness Center. I work with complex care management. I work with the sickest and most disenfranchised patients in Alameda um, Health System. I was born in Guatemala about 15 years after the CIA conducted a coup d'etat to get rid of the best president we ever have, Jacobo Arbenz. Before I turned 12, the, C the Israeli army tried out their fire guns in Guatemala at the Spanish embassy where 37 peasants were killed in a fire. I beg of Alameda Health System, where I've been working for the past seven years, that we put our names down in the right side of history and we support the families fighting for their life and water and air in Palestine. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Perez. Reset the clock, ma'am. Cabelva. Mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. Uh, please take the mic if you don't mind. You'll get a 30 second warning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, my name is Cabelba Lomeli Loevo. I'm a nurse practitioner here at Highland Hospital on K6 in the um, OMG Obstetrics and Delivery Gynecology Clinic. I've been there uh, for over a year now, but I've been with AHS in different roles for five years. Um, and I've been a nurse practitioner for about 10 years. And I am here today to ask AHS to take a strong stance against this unprecedented attack on healthcare workers, civilians, and children in Gaza. Uh, this feels 
especially important for a health system to take a stand in this case. I don't believe that ever before we've seen this level of attack on hospital uh, systems. And as a healthcare provider, it is of the utmost importance that we stand in solidarity. I cannot imagine if bombs were falling here on Highland Hospital and we felt alone and we didn't feel like the rest of the world were standing with us and watching us and seeing our care and dedication to our patients and did not stand up and speak with us. So as another healthcare provider, this is what I'm asking of the board is to make a trustee, to make Time. a statement in support of the healthcare providers in Gaza. Thank you. Thank you. The next is Gabor, and the mic is there for you, Gabor, and uh, you'll get a 30-second warning. Thank you. I'm Nadia Gaber. I'm one of the residents Sorry, here. Sorry, Nadia Gaber. Um, and I'm also a patient here. I delivered my son here six months ago. I'm also a community member, and um, I wanted to just share that I chose this institution to train because of the excellence of the emergency medicine department, but also because of the mission and values of this institution, um, which I have seen reflected in the way that we do patient care and in other statements that we've made in the past. Um, I don't like speaking publicly and what I prepared is not here, so just off the cuff, I wanted to share what I did on Monday. I sat in the courtyard and I wrote names of Jewish children and of Palestinian children who have been killed in this conflict. And I think particularly with my own new child, it is very emotional. And it was very healing for me to be able to do that with other people. I wrote the word unidentified 30 seconds until my hand hurt and I had to go back to work. I was greatly disappointed to see that this peaceful, quiet healing ritual that a lot of us have gathered to do was not, was shut down by our institution. And I am further disappointed that we have not found the courage to very simply say that we stand against the bombing of hospitals, we stand against the killing of children, and we can do that with the same commitment that we made a statement on Ukraine um, earlier last year. Thank you. Thank you. Kiana, then Goyle, then Jess Ghanem, then Henry Schwimmer. Hi. 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 Uh, microphone, if you don't mind, so oh. everyone can hear. Thank you. Uh, hello, my name is Rihanna Rashid. I'm a social worker at Highland Hospital. As a social worker, our mission is to enhance the well-being and help meet the basic needs of people with particular attention to those who are vulnerable population, oppressed, and living in poverty. I'm here today asking the Board of Trustees to consider their responsibility not just in this community as we serve our vulnerable populations here, but also to hold our social workforce values and adopt a sister hospital in Palestine. Our hospital silence through the atrocities and violence in Gaza, which have resulted in over 15,000 deaths in less than two months, has created an environment of fear, anxiety, and insecurity for many of us who work within this community while feeling like being silenced. We openly request 
to continue holding space of healing and openness for our colleagues to meet during personal breaks in public areas of our hospital. I would like to conclude by quoting our CEO, Mr. James Jackson's statement in support of Ukraine. Quote, since the war in Ukraine began last month, thousands have died, millions more have been forced to flee their country, leaving behind the life they once knew, entering a new, a new era of uncertainty, the level of destruction and fearing are heartbreaking as we see images of apartment buildings, hospitals, and other, and other places of refuge being destroyed. And while our refugee clinic has not yet received anyone from Ukraine, we stand at the ready welcome. Ukraine refugees, Time. if and when any of will come to Alameda County, I ask you all to consider what is the difference between our beloved Ukrainian and Palestinian communities. Thank you. Kiana, then Goyle, then Jess Gonham, then Henry Schlimmer, then Felix Thompson. Kiana? Did I get the name? Oh, is, is this on uh, Zoom? No, I thought she was here. Kiana? Okay. Let's go with Goyle, then Jess, then Henry Schlimmer, then Felix Thompson, then Scar. <clears throat> Dear Board of Trustees, my name is Raghav Goyal. I'm a third-year emergency medicine resident here at Highland Hospital. I'm here today asking the Board of Trustees to consider their responsibility in this community and to ask you to seriously consider our four asks and by the end of today's meeting to identify clear and concrete next steps to address them. One, a jointly written statement along the lines of that which our leaders of Lincoln City Council just published two days ago. Two, the right to gather in our courtyard and heal with each other in quote-unquote the healing sanctuary. Three, the naming of a sister hospital in Palestine. Four, the appointment of a committee with the purpose of divesting from financial relationships that support the subjugation, occupation, and annihilation of the Palestinian people. As a county hospital serving the immigrant, black, brown, patient population whose stated desire is to quote-unquote serve all, it seems self-evident that we should use our position on our community to speak out for safety and for the health of all subjugated peoples and to call for ceasefire and an evaluation of the conditions that have led to, today, led to today's such violence. It is our duty as healthcare workers to name the intentional erasure of an entire healthcare architecture, to call attention to the vast horizon of trauma that stretches out ahead of the Palestinian people and the horizon, the horizon of displacement and pain that brought them here today. I'd like to sincerely underscore that your silence on the issue of Palestine and Israel is not an avoidance of the issue. It is not you getting by without making a statement, hoping that it all blows over. It is the issue. Our field's unwillingness to name genocide, to condemn punishment, and to name the occupation is the only reason that our government is able to use our tax dollars to fuel this war. As healthcare providers, we have an opportunity and a responsibility to be a moral compass. Moreover, your silence has created an air of fear, anxiety, and unsafety for many of us here at Highland. Looking around us, coming to work every day, and seeing the resounding silence on Palestine makes many of us feel unbelievably unsafe at work. Time. It is making it very difficult for me personally to focus on patient care and my education. Time. By privileging silence, place. you are intentionally disprivileging so many of us who came to this hospital as your patients, like those facing annihilation in Palestine. I ask humbly that you take a look at your position on this board of trustees and take a principled stance based on what is happening today. Jess Gunham, Henry Schwimmer, Felix Thompson, Scarguo, Sophie Barbant. I think, is Jess on the, uh, 
I'm on. I'm on. I'm on there Zoom. You can you hear? Can you yes, hear me? Can. Okay. Yes. Are you good okay, to go? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, go for it. Um, my name is Jess Gannam. I'm a professor of psychiatry at UCSF. I'm also a Palestinian, and my fieldwork has been in Gaza and in Palestine for over 25 years. And I'm here today to say that I'm speaking in favor of the value of adopting the proposal for a sister hospital in Palestine. And I'm here to tell the Board of Trustees and the community of Highland Hospital that I'm here for you and am willing to do whatever I can in terms of my relationship with my healthcare colleagues in Gaza and in the West Bank and in Jerusalem, that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to help you make this proposal be as successful as possible. I think this would send a very powerful message, not only to the community of providers and patients at Highland, but Highland has a reputation of community engagement with the communities around it. And the message that this would send to develop a sister hospital relationship with a hospital in Palestine would, would, have a great, would have a great benefit to the community at large. There's also a practical benefit in developing a sister relationship because we're in the process of trying to rebuild the devastated healthcare infrastructure and the skill sets that the providers, the nurses, the physicians, the staff have at Highland is so remarkable. I'm sure it would come in handy. So I'm just here to support it and letting you all know that I'm ready to help in whatever way I can. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Henry Schwimmer, Felix Thompson, Scar, Sophie Barbant, Eric Snooney. Henry, are you uh, virtual or are you I, in room? I'm virtual. Can you hear me? Yes, Henry, you're good to go. We can hear you. Okay. All right. I am on the road, so I will do my best not to do anything dangerous here. But hello, esteemed members of the Board of Trustees. My name is Henry Schwimmer. I'm a fourth year emergency medicine resident here at Highland. And I humbly come before you today. Um, I'm looking for, to support many of my colleagues' requests for the board to lend your voice to publicly call for an immediate ceasefire to the conflict in Gaza. I want to recognize the diverse concerns of our community and recognize that people have been taught different histories and have a multitude of lived experiences. Many fear for their professional security, their personal safety, and for those and for the loss of a moral center that unites us. I come to work every day with a renewed weight of sorrow, horror, anger, and fear about the unimaginable loss of life and our collective responsibility as Americans in facilitating it abroad. It is with grit and compassion through reading and dialogue that the only moral and life and health affirming position we can take is to immediately demand a ceasefire. Unequivocally, I ask you to reject the killing of innocence. I ask you to reject the de devaluation of human life. I reject the idea that safety is a zero sum game. And I ask you to make a statement in support of a ceasefire in Gaza now. Thank you. 30 seconds. Thank you. Felix Thompson, Scar, Sophie Barmont. I My think I see, is that Felix? Yeah, there's Felix. Okay. Yeah. My name is Felix. I've been a nurse at Alameda Health System since 2012. I've worked at Fairmont Hospital, Eastmont Wellness, Alameda Hospital, and here at Highland. I'm a shop steward. I'm an active member of SCIU 10 to 1. And it's important that I mention tonight that I am Jewish. And my statement tonight, along with my commitment to our patients at AHS, is driven by the Jewish principle of tikkun olam, which is a call to repair the world. Tonight, I specifically want to ask each of you to take action to make a material ah. impact on the suffering being experienced in Palestine today and doing what we do best, which is strengthening the healthcare infrastructure for people in need. 
We propose that the Alameda Health System Board publicly adopt the sister hospital in Palestine, which is in accordance with our mission to serve all. Our Highland International Group, based out of the ER, is already on board. They are ready and eager to take on this project. Community partners who have already spoken are ready to help build those on-the-ground connections. This will provide opportunities for cross-training, exchange of personnel, specialty care, expertise, equipment, and long-term relationships that benefit us here at home and the healthcare workers who are working under life-threatening conditions abroad. You can take action immediately to make this a reality. Given the crisis impacting medical providers and caregivers, hospitals and clinics in Palestine, the need to take action is urgent. Please empower the executive, um, the executives and medical leadership teams and the Highland International Group to take action to adopt a sister hospital before the end of this year. Thank you for your comments. Scar, Guo, Sophie Barbon, Eric Snui, Mike Frozen. Hi, I'm Scar Guo. I am a first year emergency resident here. Um, as somebody who grew up here in the East Bay, did school here, and am now working here, I know that the County of Alameda and Oakland is among the most diverse and welcoming to people of all walks of life. Um, the patients we serve at Highland have lived very hard lives and are in many ways similar to the innocent adults and children in Gaza. They have escaped physical, social, economic violence and seek refuge to live a better life. Our mission has always been to help our patients pursue health, um, happiness, um, and that better life. The difference between our patients and the people and children in Gaza is that the world is silent for them. We speak for our patients and we fight for them and we work for them every day. 30 seconds. But the 5,500 children who died in Gaza so far, many of them unidentified, have no one to speak for them. Um, voices of Americans are powerful. We need voices of power to help amplify the cries of those children who are just asking for their lives to be spared. And I wish to empower the board to help us make a public statement against the killing of innocent people. Thank you. Sophie Barbon, Eric Snui, Mike Crozen, Donna Benzur. I'm sorry, Dr. Zuber. I will be speaking for all of us. Okay, so uh, let me just come down the list what I have. Sophie Barbon, seating time. Eric Snui, seating time. Mike Crozen, seating time. Donna Benzur, seating time. Uh, Sarah Fleissig, seating time. Rebecca Astrakhan, seating time. Marina Triliskaya, seating time. Jessica Zitter. Just keep it still ninety seconds, or uh, let, let's let's keep it keep it at ninety seconds. Okay. Good evening. My name is Dr. Jessica Nudik Zitter, and I am speaking for a group of Jewish staff and trainees at Highland Hospital. We come to you to express the impact on us 
of the events unfolding in our place of work over the past week and a half. Given the conflict in Israel and Gaza and the subsequent unprecedented surge in anti-Semitism in the United States, many American Jews are feeling significant stress and threat. We Jews at Highland, where diversity and inclusion is celebrated, had hoped that our hospital would be a sanctuary where we could do the work of caring for our patients in a safe and supportive work environment. However, the reverse has been true. Since November 10th, we have experienced a rising number of incidents that are alienating us from this community and threatening our ability to focus on delivering excellent care. Many people have chosen sides in this conflict, and we are subjected to a loud and constant barrage of one-sided protests, sign writing, flyers, and political posters that feel angry and divisive. 30 seconds. Memos from administration stating that these are not accepted uses of public space have been ignored. If people ignore the rules today, what will tomorrow bring? I personally have been on getting calls every night for the past few days from distraught Jewish staff and residents who feel unsafe, marginalized, and excluded in the current environment that lacks psychological safety. A hospital is not a place for politics. Um, our mission here at Highland is to deliver excellent patient care, working collaboratively in close teams. Patients need to feel a sense of calm and kindness around them. These conditions cannot be met when people are posting political flyers, leaving angry notes in resident workrooms, and writing comments that are divisive. Individual actions here at Highland won't likely change the course of this conflict in the Middle East, but they very well can affect patient care and professional relationships here in Oakland. We respectfully ask that the staff be required to leave their politics at the door and focus 100% of their efforts at delivering the excellent patient care that is known and hallmark of Highland Hospital. Thank you very much for your time. Step one, making the threat to be completed public comment. Okay. Thank you for the feedback from everybody. Polarization and diversity the, the division doesn't serve our organization or our patients. It's sad to see. Hopefully we can find a way. With that, we're going to close the public comment section. We're going to go to section A. Uh, I'm actually going to defer section A. Section A, uh, actually, I'm not going to defer, defer it totally. There was an article, Big Changes Coming to Medi-Cal, the state's health plan for 40% of Californians from the Chronicle. Uh, this is a tectonic move. Uh, Tangerine Brigham's in the room. I think she's commented on this before. Uh, I'm going to leave this, given the weight of what we've discussed this evening. This is important stuff for us all to know about. It has implications on our reading. Uh, on how we execute care, care here. So I'm going to defer reading of the article. And by the way, it was accidentally not included, wasn't it? Yeah, but you could, like, the title was there, so you could okay. Google it and get it. Got it. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's okay. Uh, I, I'm going to take a little bit of chair's discretion as well here. Uh, this is the last meeting of Trustee Kinkini Banerjee. She has served dutifully this board for nine years. Nine years, she served in every capacity of this board, from the board chair to chairs of each of the committees to every single committee, you name an ad hoc committee, she's been on it. Um, her, her loyalty and, and duty and service to this organization uh, uh, cannot be understated. Um, thank you, Dr. Trustee Banerjee, for, for, for being part of us and helping guide this, this place. Thank you so much. I 
AHS has given much more to me than I could ever give or I could ever express in words. So, there are no words, so thank you. Trustee Esteem, throw one in. Thank you very much for your service, Trustee Manager. It's, it's been wonderful. So. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Manager. With that, we move to the consent agenda. Trustees, the consent agenda is before you. Before entertaining a motion to approve the entirety of the consent agenda, are there any items which need to be withdrawn for discussion? We have items B1, minutes, B2, policies and procedure, B3, medical staff policies, and Bravo 4, revised privilege forms. Barring no discussion, may I entertain a motion to approve the entirety of the consent agenda? I second. Madam Clerk. Um, Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Esteem. Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. With that, we now go to the medical staff reports. This is the portion of the evening where we hear directly from our medical staff leaders as per our charter. Uh, we have uh, three med staff leaders in the room here, as always. We have uh, Dr. Lana Lee, the chief of staff for uh, uh, the health system. We have uh, Dr. Nikki Joshi, the chief of staff for Alameda Hospital. And we have Dr. Abid Maganam, who is chairs our San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee. Um, dealer's choice, as we say. Anyone? Dr. Joshi, game on. Okay, great, because picking me actually picks Dr. Lee because <laughs> as many <laughs> may know, we have combined our open session. Uh, although we are two independent medical staffs, we have combined our open session and we have been piloting it for the last, I think, um, three, four months. And so our reports are combined, although there are important areas um, to highlight for Alameda Hospital. But just want to emphasize that we see synergy in a lot of what is happening across the system. And so to make our reports more effective, we've chosen to blend them. So to start with, you will see in your packet the combined uh, report. And um, point A is under community Al Alameda Hospital. So there was another joint powers affiliation meeting that happened November 7th. Um, option 3B has been expanded into 3B, 1, 2, and 3. Uh, which is the option that allows for acute care beds and the various options are uh, variations on elective surgery and other things that um, Mr. Fratsky has been working on along with Dr. Deutsch uh, and that committee. So we went to that meeting. It was a good meeting and we look forward to hearing more details about how these would look and what the ultimate decision will be. Um, moving on to quality, various things under this section, but I want to highlight that we heard about the new RCA2 process, root cause analysis process, uh, which is based on some established research that is available in the publications within the field of quality. So this new pilot that uh, Dr. Hornabene and Amatoris presented to us will start as a pilot and it's going to allow for a more expanded committee that conducts the RCAs, that does investigations, um, a type of calendar to follow that keeps things very timely. So we're looking forward to seeing how that looks. And the presentation at MEC when we heard about this was lively. There was good dialogue. So we're looking forward to seeing how that manifests. And then I'll turn it over to Dr. Lee for the remainder of the report. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Um, so my remaining part of the report under medical staff governance 
the medical staff approved the medical staff professionalism and conduct policy and procedure. This supports the standard and expectations around professional behavior, ethics, and integrity among medical staff. The three tiers for review process and intervention were developed and guided by our just culture algorithm. Recommendations for the approach and documentation um, are outlined in this policy to help guide the chairs of the departments and the professional uh, standards committee as they approach each scenario. There are also pathways for escalation where more guidance or review, when more guidance or review is necessary or requested. Uh, we also heard from our DART team, which stands for Disaster Action Response Team. Uh, Dr. Ballard reported and called for a multidisciplinary task force, including clinical leaders and executive team members to develop an integrated interdepartmental system-wide response to mass casualty events. She highlighted the different areas of a hospital system affected when a traumatic event occurs, such as the emergency department, operating rooms, intensive care units, med surge towers. She spoke about the critical need for planning and drills across all these hospital areas to come together to be prepared in response to respond to mass casualty events. Our GME office, Dr. Pam Sims Mackey also highlighted the amazing support and guidance of the GME office as it offers to six AHS-based residency programs with six partnership programs with institutions such as UCSF, Kaiser, and Sutter CPMC. They oversee the education of over 320 residents and fellows and over 225 medical students. The GME on uh, DEI also continues to focus on resident recruitment and well-being by promoting workplace diversity, equity of care, and inclusive professional development within AHS. The medical staff also continues their chair search committee um, searches for the departments of imaging and radiology, obstetrics, midwifery and gynecology, and psychiatry. And for department reports, the Department of Medicine from Alameda Hospital gave us an update. Um, and Dr. Portia Mack also gave us an update on the AHS Primary Care Task Force. She spoke about primary care provider recruitment efforts, including exploring career fairs, residency connections, and offering referral and signing bonuses. She presented a supply demand assessment, which highlighted the critical supply shortage of primary care access across AHS. She proposed methods to improve in-basket management, which were overwhelmingly the primary reason for burnout highlighted by the primary care score survey. And that is the conclusion of my report and I will open to questions. Thank you. I do have yeah, one trustee question. Team. Yeah, with, with the, uh, I guess just to clarify, are the majority or all of the primary providers Exactly. Are, will they be equivalent? 
well, we're currently in negotiations, and then we have a way to reopen our crew UAP, I guess. Got it. Uh, Dr. McGonnum, good evening. Good evening. Thank you, everybody. Um, we, we had our um, San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee meeting um, er, earlier this month, and at that meeting, we discussed uh, structural improvements to the OR, both within the operating room. Um, we're making plans to improve lights, possibly add in more radiation shielding for safety for the providers and patients in the room. And also, um, Mari Harding detailed a significant investment in the sterile processing department, which will allow departments like orthopedic surgery to continue to provide efficient, high-quality care to the patients. Uh, in addition, we discussed the uh, POET clinic. This is now operational. This is a pre-op clinic um, for patients um, that will be referred via the uh, anesthesia department. Um, there is a need for a few more providers, but this POET clinic will serve, will serve both St. Leandro Hospital and Highland Hospital, and, and we discussed ways for both AHS and non-AHS groups to uh, have patients be served in this um, uh, in this pre-op clinic. Additionally, we, we discussed um, improving operating room efficiency, and specifically, we discussed the ongoing search for a permanent and not an interim um, uh, operating room manager to San Leandro Hospital, which I think will give us consistent direction. Um, and it seems like there are a, a few named candidates and we're nearing conclusion on that. Um, outside of the operating room domain, the um, CT scanner is completed on, on operation and operational. The CT scanner room suite looks amazing and it's the most updated technology that we have. So very happy about that. Um, additionally, um, uh, we reviewed our, in terms of quality, we reviewed our two North, two North metrics. We got an initial good report. We have data through August and we are um, meeting, uh, we're mostly at goal with the metrics that we reviewed. Um, the data uh, for the second half of the quarter will be coming in um, December 15th. So we'll have more to share at that point in time. Uh, additionally, we are uh, looking forward to uh, hearing about upcoming equity metrics, and there's more to come on that. So that's all for my report. If you guys have any questions, I'm happy to take them. Thank you. Steve. All right, last meeting of the year, so I have to throw some curveballs. Um, so uh, for the three of you, uh, you know, uh, the, I, I guess it's a pilot project of combining the medical staffs uh, for the open session. Uh, I, I would like you guys just to riff on how you think that's going. I think that there have definitely been areas that we've seen has worked really well and really well, and I think there are some opportunities. So what I think has worked really well has been to, for example, Alameda Hospital, really, what is the future of Alameda Hospital, what happens with these meetings with the joint powers. Um, so I think combining the MECs has allowed for the MECs to also understand that what happens to Alameda Hospital is a system-wide um, impact. And so allowing for more of the physicians to be able to have discussions both in open and in closed session has been really helpful and very important. Um, what I think 
we are looking to improve upon is frankly the length of the meeting it's very long meeting and long doesn't mean better so how can we be more efficient how can we have an agenda that allows for dialogue instead of just sort of padding um but also combining has allowed us to think about what other ways can we combine so our um credentials committee about more than a year ago combined. And that was really effective because how we onboard physicians is critically important, but very tedious because it's a lot of information to sort through. But that's worked really well. So where can we take that further? Um, are there other opportunities to combine, but with the goal of improving, allowing dialogue and ultimately improving <laughs> the quality care of the patients? So that would be my long answer. And the short answer is, I think we're gonna continue the pilot, but we're gonna look to improve the agenda. Uh, uh, Trustee Banerjee. Thank you. Uh, and your, so your open sessions are joint and your closed sessions are together as well, or do you? No, no, they're separate. Yeah, those are separate. So, and so some of the key things that are discussed there are still kind of distinct and separate from each other, um, site-specific issues. Is there some space where some of that is uh, you know, some of the findings or distillations of what some of the pain points are, are actually uh, being shared in some, you know, the highlights, not the, not the you know, more around strategy, more about solutions. No, definitely there are, because the reality is majority of Alameda Hospital med staff members are also at AHS. So that allows opportunity to be able to have closed conversations that are protected, but also as system leaders, for example, um, while Dr. Subramanian, who is the chair of medicine, is not the chair of medicine at Alameda Hospital, but she still oversees um, the medical subspecialty care, for example, rheumatology, nephrology, et cetera. So that is at Alameda Hospital. So a lot of those issues, we're still able to have important dialogue with the key people. Uh, can you remind the trustees how long the open session is? <laughs> uh, on a good day, <laughs> maybe three and a half hours. And when there are lots of things to discuss, maybe. Well, okay, to be fair, it's a combination of open and closed that can sometimes be five hours long. So, is it via Zoom or do y'all uh, actually go to each other's uh, facilities? Zoom. Zoom. It is a long meeting. There, are, There is opportunity. Uh, from your perspective, Dr. Lee, and then Dr. McGonagall, your perspective on this, 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 this pilot of combining the med staff. I completely agree with Dr. Joshi. We we've actually talked about each of those points um, together, and uh, we do plan that the medical staff leaders all meet, and we will sort of work on the agenda to make this a more efficient, um, really focusing on quality, um, ensuring that all the topics are are addressed at open session um but also making it like tolerable for <laughs> all the people that are there um i also see it like as a benefit like you know obgyn just going to use my department as an example um we we don't offer all of our services at alameda hospital but it is um kind of enlightening to be able to 
see the effect um, of some measures that might be going on at AHS affecting Alameda Hospital or what, you know, our department and how that guides our decisions going forward. So I think it's very helpful to have a combined open meeting um, just because we, we do span two medical staffs and, um, and, and have that vision um, in one place. Thanks, Dr. Lee. Dr. McGonham. Just not to reiterate things that um, have been said, it seems like things are working fine from the perspective of San Leandro Hospital with the combined medical staff. Thank you. Uh, uh, because I sit in on that meeting, I guess I'll keep it brief. I, I, I appreciate when people can actually see the system as a system. And, and, and I think the benefit of being in that room is to see things that you don't normally see. Which, which I, I think is a, a great thing. Um, all right, last curveball for you guys. We're going to take a little bit of time. Sorry, a few curveballs. Each of you are going to tell me uh, what is your deepest concern coming towards the end of the year, and then what is the thing that you're, from your perspectives as leaders, what's the thing you're most proud of with regard to your respective groups? <laughs> Sorry, Dr. McGonagall, I saw the eyeballs go big. <laughs> <laughs> You all have concerns, you've expressed them, you can do that, but just as we close out the year to remind the trustees where, where to keep our eyes, where to pat ourselves on the back, and where to not pat ourselves on the back. My bad, I didn't prep you for this question. So I, I, I can go. Um, so, so my deepest concern is the um, uh, amount of uh, community physicians that have um, not continued to practice at San Leandro Hospital. Um, and that's is for a variety of reasons, um, mostly, you know, OR efficiency. And um, we are working on that. And I'm actively encouraging the providers, at least that I know, to, um, you know, be patient and work with us. And as we try to continue to, continue to improve efficiency, um, the, the things that I'm most proud of um, at the hospital is that uh, at San Leandro Hospital is that we recognize this as a problem. We're very open about it. We're working on it. Um, and also um, the collegiality between departments that I think is unmatched. Um, and when it comes to our common goal of providing excellent patient care in the setting of sometimes limited resources. Thank you, Dr. McGonagall. Dr. Joshi. Uh, I'd say that um, one of my deepest concerns would be um, making sure that we continue to work on expanding access to specialty care for the patients, um, access to, I use the example of urology and neurosurgery often because at least from the community hospitals, the number of physicians that we have access to is very limited and um, and it often is that it's difficult to see that improving and there's a variety of reasons, um, but I hope that we recognize the need for the subspecialty uh, physicians, especially in the surgical fields that are really important to our patients. Some of these issues are such that patients really don't have options to go anywhere else for that care. So if we at HS can't provide these important um, urology, neurosurgery, and these types of uh, resources, then our patients don't really have anywhere else to get them. So 
I hope to say that continuing to work on recruitment and building up those divisions are important. I'm proud. I have to advocate for the other patient access, which is through primary care. Um, I go to so many of our quip meetings, our quality meetings, where we see the denominator of patients who are not impaneled, who are on a wait list for primary care in the tens of thousands. And um, it's disconcerting that there are so many people out there that rely on us for care and cannot get in the door. So um, that is my primary concern as we approach 2024. Um, and what I'm really proud of as you know, my first year of chief of staff is, is getting to know everyone at AHS. Um, I get to see everyone at a, a level that I didn't as a department leader um, and really feel the passion and mission that people feel that people feel towards our population of patients um, and that everyone's very mission oriented, um, maybe sometimes with different goals but definitely all focused on getting the care that our patients need. So that I'm really proud of that. Thank you. Dr. Joshi, you had a proud thing? Yeah, I am very proud. Um, I think the work that's happened in quality, especially I'm gonna highlight um, Ana Torres here, is really moving in directions that are really interesting trying to be creative in looking at reports beyond reporting out and how to initiate change based on them. Um, I say this from the perspective because I have done years of simulation and I love simulation. And so a lot of the work in quality, in debriefing and analyzing systems issues, you know, feels true to me. So I'm glad to see that. And um, I'm excited to see where that will continue to go as we you know, the physician leaders work and do our part to contribute and to see how we can make changes. So I think 2024 is going to be a great year for quality and I'm excited for that. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Alameda Hospital did pretty nice on a CMS star rating this year too, didn't they? They did, uh, proud of that. Uh, doctors, thank you very much for your service and uh, thank you very much. And we'll see you at the top of the new year. With that, we'll close item C. We'll go into item D. Uh, the quality reports, um, we only actually have D1. D2 is actually a, a written report from uh, Mr. Espinoza. So uh, this is, of course, led by our VP quality, uh, Ms. Hannah Torres. Good evening. Hi, good evening, everyone. Um, I will start with the patient safety report. So um, our patient harm, um, as you know, our goal is 2.5%. Um, actually, I should say our goal is zero but certainly not, not above 2.5%. Um, and we are exactly at that goal for year to date. For the month of October, we were at 1.8% and all of the harm was of E category. And as a reminder, E means that it was only temporary harm to the patient. Um, as far as culture of safety, I won't go into that too much because Darshan did give an extensive report uh, last month, but we, did have a 74% um, response rate, which was great. And um, out of 160 departments that participated in the survey, we are at a 99% rate of uh, action plan completion, which is excellent. Um, so I'd like to thank everyone for all their work on that. 
Um, patient relation events, um, we did see a slight drop this month, um, or I should say for the month of October, which was great news. Um, however, when we annualize the numbers, we will exceed fiscal year 2023. At the last meeting, there was discussion on the resources, uh, whether we had sufficient resources in patient relations. Um, and I just want to report back that we are looking at that. We're looking at the type of events that we're getting, um, what areas we could streamline and where we can use um, folks to sort of shore up the proactive programs that are part of the uh, patient grievance, such as the communication and transparency, which is one of the programs we'll be going live with um, in 2024. Um, so more information to come, but we are looking at that process. Um, and that's it with the patient safety um, piece. If there Are there any questions? I'm gonna actually pass it to Nilda to do the regulatory piece, but Has I want any questions. questions. So if there are any now. Uh, no, I think Darshan had mentioned, so 2024 <coughs> we are, and you said the patient relations work is going to, that part of beta is going to launch for sure. Yes, it's going to launch in 2024. We're looking at that next domain, the communication and transparency. And our patient relation uh, staff will be heavily involved with that. So we're considering that as we're looking at uh, the staffing and the resources in that area. That's certainly going to factor in. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Good evening, Ms. Perez. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you. Um, can you hear me? We can. <laughs> okay, so great. I'm we'll suffering from it. some dual uh, uh, phone outage and IT uh, challenges since I returned to the back in the country. Apparently, I'm not allowed to leave. <laughs> um, but thank you. I just wanted to give a brief summary of some our regulatory activity. Um, we actually did have an Impala resurvey from the California Department of Health that was representing CMS at Highland in October. Um, and I'm happy to say I just received that as I'm trolling through uh, a few hundred emails. I found that they have uh, actually closed that out. So we actually are now back in compliance and our certification uh, is, is um, intact for um, AHS. So that's wonderful news. Uh, so uh, kudos to the ED team and our medical staff, uh, leadership for Dr. Wills and under Dusty uh, Gillian for uh, the ED team and uh, also Dr. Bernice Perez who uh, pitched in along with um, just a myriad of people that uh, got, got us a good outcome. Uh, we had three uh, licensing visits that were conducted. One was at Highland, one was at San Leandro um, on behalf of imaging services, um, so expanding that service line, and one at South Shore Skilled Nursing uh, to reinstate the uh, licensure for moving patients back. Um, so that was also all very positive outcomes. We had one facility reported a complaint investigation um, that we reported uh, to CDPH um, in, during the month. And then uh, we had two adverse events at Highland that we self-reported, and we had two adverse events at John George that were self-reported. We've had no uh, other Joint Commission activity. Um, we did, uh, we've, uh, all of our uh, corrective action plans are almost all completed. They, and of course, any plan that is still not meeting goal, we will continue to monitor and continue to stay on top of it until we have consistent compliance. Our MTALA survey, as I stated, was conducted, and we have 
uh, a wonderful outcome from that. So I guess I jumped the gun a little bit on that. I was a little excited to see that. Mm-hmm. So that's my report. Trustees, any questions? Any questions? Any questions? Thank you, Ms. Brass. Thank you. Is it dashboard time? Let's do it. Good evening, Ms. Johnson. Good evening. This is our True North Metric report. This is data through August. Um, start at the beginning of the report. So when we take a look at our patient harm, you can see that we are showing, uh, we have been trending uh, mostly downward. We had a little blip um, uh, last month. But um, when we look at our harms, our new, our most common harm type right now is our behavior events that result in physical injury. And um, that's not unsurprising because that's our brand new harm that we added to our harm index this year. To address that, I know that um, there are multiple campuses working on bringing this event type. We are going to engage beta and their workplace violence reduction module to help us uh, further identify ways to bring these types of events down. I know that the ED, our EDs are working on a behavior event response team to help in, in all of our EDs with these types of patients. And then of course, John George, where we have patients whose um, medical conditions make them more prone to impulse uh, control issues are reviewing every uh, uh, behavior event that occurs in, 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 in depth to address and develop action plans. And they are also actively working on, uh, sometimes we have patients who are sort of very frequently uh, seen at John George and are sort of known to have more impulse control issues. And so in that regards, they're developing uh, care plans so that when these patients arrive, the staff know exactly what might be their triggers were and how to sort of uh, keep the patient from escalating and interventions put in place immediately. So lots of work regarding um, addressing those events. For acute, we're really looking at happy. And so I actually just came from our uh, happy and falls retreat that we just launched today where we had uh, frontline, we had uh, representation from nursing, physicians, and when, and also when I say representation, I'm talking from VP all the way down to frontline staff. We had RNA or CNAs there. We really were picking their brains about what are the um, barriers that are keeping us from produ- reducing hospital ulcers and falls and generated over 150 ideas on how we could improve um, and bring and make things safer and better for our patients. Some are really tangible ideas that could be implemented in 90 days and others will take a longer period of time, but it was exciting to see the whole team come together and generate some really great work for the future state. So stay tuned because we're gonna keep working that. Um, <clears throat> from a hand washing perspective, we have consistently remained above 90%. We tend to, to waver between 90 and 94%. Um, to help us get to that final that final push to our 90 to 95 where we want to be we are going to be embarking on an empowering hand washing campaign where we're encouraging everyone from patient and family to pay to staff to remind each other to wash our hands and and to make sure that we're socializing and preparing the staff for this change we're actually going to run a slogan contest in December and January to ask the staff to help us come up with a slogan for our new empowering hand washing campaign. 
If we uh, move on into True North or uh, third next available appointment, we were trending downward. We had a, a really strong cleanup process, and but and for the first time in uh, August, we saw this number come up, but just a little bit. So we remain on track in, uh, across both adult, pediatric, and specialty for our target goals for the year, and we just missed it for adult in August. So um, we're definitely going to keep working on this and make sure that we keep uh, we stay in the green here. When we move on to 30-day uh, all-cause readmissions, this is very interesting. After three solid years of bringing down our readmission rate very consistently, for the very first time towards the very tail end of last fiscal year and continuing into this year, we've seen an actual uptick in overall readmissions. So in response to this, our readmissions team is doing a deep dive and reviewing all the readmissions to understand the root cause. And we're also working, um, the readmissions team is working to coordinate in coordination with our uh, utilization and care management te teams. And we're gonna run a very small pilot in uh, this month at Alameda to really look at, we have a, Epic has a tool that will predict readmission risk when a patient arrives. We're gonna pick some high readmission risk patients and um, uh, put in some key interventions and see if we can really use that information and prevent readmissions. And if, we, if it proves fruitful, we're gonna sp uh, spread it in bed. Um, Can I ask a quick question? Of course. On the previous, right before readmissions, the uh, days between appointment request and appointment. Specialty or primary care? Oh, both, actually. Okay, got it. Um, because we just heard Dr. Lee at the admission, right. tens of thousands of people. I actually have a like clarifying question. She said waiting to be impaneled and also waiting to be seen. Help me understand the difference between what, what does it mean to be impaneled for me and the 29 other people listening. And then how does that then become where you fall in line in care? And then how do you get to make an appointment request? Because can you make an appointment request if you're not in panel? Just walk me through it slowly, please. Whoever can answer that question. Sure. I, I, can, I can start. Okay. Dr. Um, so that for um, all of our primary care physicians have That's how you know they, they take care of a certain group of patients. There's a there's a ratio dependent on their FTE. Right, like one doctor working full time could yeah, see three hundred people. I think it's twelve fifty. I don't know if Dr. Subram is that right. Yeah. It's twelve fifty. Twelve fifty. Thank you. Twelve fifty. One a one point zero in panel. Twelve hundred fifty yeah. patients, patients is the max panel on a one. On a one point one. So then, and your next question was around kind of these numbers and then what also what Dr. Lee was saying. So yes. um, part of what is, so these, the TNAA, these are for return visit. Yes. Part of the practice that we used to have here at Alameda Health System is that we used to put new patients in return visits. In January, of new, patients new patients in return visits in order to get our new patients in. Um, and that practice Ceased. I mean, it started in around 2019, and then it ceased in January of 2023. Um, out of uh, response, you know, a lot of our clinicians were like, "This is it's just too hard to have new patients in return spots because then, on a, in a day, you might see a ton of new patients, and that's very hard to do." So that practice turned over. But what it unmasked was oh, sure. What led to that in 2019? 
Um, this was, it was access at the time. So I remember speaking with Dr. Gaviria at the time and, and that policy change was done in order to try and improve access for new patients. But um, when we changed back, then effectively what has been done is that the true demand for new patients for primary care has been now unmasked. Um, and there's a, a growing list uh, of patients um, and, and certainly um, that's an area of active conversation. I was you know, in contact again with Dr. Mack just today about what, what we do about that because it's a growing list of patients. Your next question was around referrals, is that? Well then, so if they're not in panel, and we're looking at this is a These are in panel, right. These are all the people in panels, the 1250 times whatever, FTEs times number of doctors. But then we have these tens of thousands of patients who are not in panels, so then how do we understand where they fit in being seen? Like how many years is it gonna take if you're number 10,000, you know, 15,000, wherever you are on the list of trying to get in? And is that, are we then saying, just making sure this is the assigned unseen? Is that basically, yeah, so yeah, I think yeah, it's that yeah, population. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're assigned unseen. Yes, unseen. exactly. Um, and so certainly there's, you know, over the years there's been an outreach program, I know, um, that there was, and I see, uh, you know, I saw Tangerine online, that there was some work also with our payers around appropriate assignments um, to um, health systems, depending on where a patient may live, you know, sure. that if they so live out in East County or something like that, that have a different health system. So there was some work done around there, but the assigned and seen, it's, that's a tricky population because, uh, for example, for some of our quality metrics under QIP, we are held to the care of those patients, and yet they might not engage with our health system in order to really meet those metrics for healthcare, you know, the prevention, you know, all of the preventive metrics that, that we want to be able to reach um, our patients for. And then for our specialty care, those patients are not always paneled with us for primary care because we get referrals, you know, Dr. Bouquet here is yeah. one of our specialists, we get referrals from all over the place. Um, to gastroenterology and, and other specialties. So hopefully that answered. So Trustee yeah. Esteen, that was a great question. It helps on the, yeah. the, the, the public and us understand the nuance here. This basically is a great metric to show us for patients we've touched who we need to touch again. Totally. But if we don't have on our dashboard those we have not touched, yeah. which again, mm -hmm. so it, it feels there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance. So great for picking it up because if there is a little bit of cognitive dissonance because here, 14 days, that's not so bad, right? And, and but it's not. I had a follow-up to yes, that. In the article that we read, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it said that the anthem is going away and yeah. they are coming into the alliance yeah. group again. And once they come into alliance, I guess when they get distributed, we will get even more probably yes. in that, uh, that are assigned to us. But where yeah. is the capacity for yeah. us to yeah. see? And so that, uh, that was one. And uh, <clears throat> Tangerine, I think, will comment for that. Yeah. Tangerine, uh, Ms. Brigham, are you in the room? I, I am in the room. Yes, ma'am. Um, so let me first comment spread, on spread, the. Yeah, spread your wisdom on us. <laughs> oh, God. You know, uh, we'll see. We'll see how, how convincing I am. Um, so let me first start with the assigned unseen. There's been a significant increase in the number of assigned unseen um, over the past three years 
due to the public health emergency. I think people need to understand that. What happened for over three years, um, the state uh, did not do any disenrollments from the Medi-Cal program. That was uh, not only in California, but across the nation, because the idea was this is not the time to do redeterminations when we want everyone to get access to COVID testing, vaccinations, et cetera. Um, and so in California, the Medi-Cal population combination of no disenrollments and new enrollments increased by over 25%. It went to over 15 or 16 million. I think I've talked about that before. The state reinstituted uh, redeterminations uh, this spring. And so what we're starting to see or what the state will see will be those individuals who were enrolled unseen, but quite frankly, perhaps should have been disenrolled previously become disenrolled. That will reduce the number of assigned unseen. It still doesn't address the fundamental access issue that, you know, um, Dr. Tornabene was talking about, but I do want to make sure people understand that we expect a reduction in that number over time. And uh, the state will finish the first round of redeterminations next summer. And so we'll have a better sense of what our true unsigned, uh, rather unseen uh, population is. Then when it comes to um, the article and the changes there, there are a couple things that are happening. Certainly in California, the state is expanding coverage to the undocumented population. That's a great thing. Many of those people were already seeing, so it doesn't change and they're already assigned to us through the county's health program of Alameda County. So those individuals are not new to us. It doesn't require an increase in our clinical capacity because we're already serving them. And we're hoping that as they transition from uninsured status to insured status, that they'll continue to select us as a provider, sort of in the capacity there. Then um, the other changes in terms of the, the broader Medi-Cal structure and going from a single, from a two plan to a single plan. Those individuals are currently in our system who are uh, Anthem Blue Cross and they'll migrate to Alameda Alliance and they'll still stay with us if they, they want to. So that does not change or increase the need for capacity for that population. Now, there are some individuals who will become new to Medi-Cal through the expansion, whom we've never seen. Those individuals may select us or they may select other in individual uh, providers or other individual systems in the, in the health plans network. And it remains to be seen how many of those new individuals will select us. But we will certainly be monitoring all of that as these new changes come into effect starting January, 2024.
uh, are really high accuracy patients that we should be seeing because our data tells us so that we don't see people for the first time by the time they're almost blind. Like right. the HA1C is like 13, 14. And so like for the unseen, there's no, uh, we don't have the technology to stratify risk. So what we know is that um, beginning in January of this year, um, all health plans began risk stratification. So we get a risk stratification score on every individual that's assigned to us. Um, they're either low risk, emerging risk, or high risk. Uh, for people assigned to us, about 2% of the population based on the health plan's information is high risk. So we do get that information. But I think it's important to recognize the health plan prior to COVID, they haven't, I haven't seen updated information um, post-COVID, about a third of their population was assigned to the health plan, but had not received a service anywhere. So these aren't individuals who are going to the ED and not going to primary care. These are individuals who may be healthy, who think, you know, I don't need an annual primary care visit. I'm, you know, 25 years old and I'll go in for a visit when I need something. So I think it's important to understand the assigned unseen uh, who are perhaps using ED services for whom we want these risk scores so that we can address them to those who've never had a service at all based on the health plan's data and then paying claims on, on individuals. So I think it's really important to distinguish that. Okay, very helpful. Thank you, Ms. Brigham. So I, I think from, uh, yeah, thank you for trying to, un, uh, to, to uncloud all this cloudy quagmire for us. I think from, my, from our perspective, the blind spot that the board has with regard to this dashboard, and the ownership is on us because we approved the dashboard, is that we don't know how many people who want to see us, how long it takes to get them into primary care. Uh, and, and fully understanding that the target is, I, I sort of remember this discussion with Dr. Turner, it's such a moving target, it's hard to manage. So what, what is our messaging? How long does it take someone who wants to see a primary care doctor, how long does it take them to get into us? Do we have that number? Probably do. I don't, okay. I don't know what else that's how and okay. for what you're, you're saying for a new a new primary care and return. Yeah. yeah. So well, we well, have return. We have return. Okay. This this someone says, hey, I want us I want AHS to be my new primary care. How long would it take for them to see us? And, and I'm not putting anyone on the spot now, but I think this is an important question vis-a-vis -vis the data that we have up here to and, and, well, and fully acknowledging yeah. we didn't choose it for the dashboard because it was moving. But I think that's important for us to know. I mean one of the things we talked about where we communicated about for next calendar year is a monthly deep dive yeah. into one of these metrics. Yeah. And perhaps for the ambulatory grouping, whether we do primary care or specialty care, we could include some information yeah. in that. I, I think that's that a Because we hear this we hear these words thousands of people on the wait list, but, but what does that mean? Yeah. Um Ms. Johnson, will you scroll up just a little bit? I have one little question, and again, we're happy that we finally, how dare us splash some green onto this dashboard, <laughs> but we finally have a little bit of green. Uh, under safety ambulatory, there's no target, and I think we talked about this last time. Can we just put a zero in there as a target? Yep. 
because if all the other targets are to be less than 50% and we only have one, let's make it zero. Okay. And hopefully that'll guarantee some green for us on something. <laughs> Trustees, any other comments? Thank you on the dashboard. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. Excellent uh, quality. I mean, just the leap this year you all have done. So thank you so much, Dean. Yeah, thank you so much. And also, I just want to recognize the quality team spent the afternoon facilitating the exciting quality retreat. Okay. You know, and, and then are, are, are here really just doing the kind of great work. Got it. So uh, with that, uh, Ms. Torres, can we close the agenda item? So that well, that will close D1. Everyone recalls that we always include D2, uh, um, which is actually the, the, the post-acute uh, quality report. Uh, that's been submitted in written form. So that's item H on your agendas. So we'll close item D. We have two items left. It's 617. We're doing okay. Uh, first, we'll do uh, the quality plan with uh, Christian Rieta, who's our director of uh, quality uh, and outcomes. Good evening, Mr. Rieta. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I think it's possible my to do this in about 10 minutes? Absolutely. Awesome. I'd be happy to do so. All right, just uh, verifying that everyone can hear me as well as see my screen. We're good. Thank you. All right, so I'm here to present our fiscal year 2024 quality assurance and performance improvement plan. This is also found under your policies and procedures within the packet. All right, I added this slide to just kind of give everyone some context on the priority that you know the nation has on quality plans throughout um, throughout our nation. So the Office of Inspector General, the OIG, has reviewed a sample of Medicare patients who were discharged from hospitals in 2018. The studies show that 25% of these sampled patients were harmed during their hospitalization. Half of these were temporary harm events and half were adverse events. 41% of these occurrences were preventable and a combined cost of these events were hundreds of millions of dollars. So the OIG uh, made recommendations to update and broaden the list of hospital-acquired conditions known as HACs uh, to capture common, preventable, and high-cost harms. We have about 20 now, um, so I imagine that they're going to be adding to that. Um, and they also recommended uh, for all uh, healthcare entities to develop and release interpretive guidelines to surveyors uh, for assessing hospital compliance to track and monitor patient harm. Uh, sorry, that was an ask of the OIG to CMS. Soon after that study um, was released and in response to the OIG, CMS released a memorandum stating that interpretive guidelines for all copies were released uh, to surveyors in order to evaluate each hospital's response to those hacks. The QAPI conditions of participation requires a hospital to maintain and demonstrate evidence of its QAPI program for review by CMS, as well as the governing body oversight of the program in an effort to deliver safe quality patient care and prevent adverse events and patient harm. The interpretive guidelines, although meant to instruct surveyors, have been shared with the hospitals. Um, there, this allows uh, transparency and preparation. CMS expects each hospital to demonstrate a comprehensive data-driven QAPI program. Some of the major focus of the QAPI programs include an engaged government body, uh, data-driven interventions throughout the system, and service-specific improvements, uh, and to make sure that these are all monitored and sustained um, interventions to reduce preventable harms. 
So we've made changes to our copy. Again, it's included in your packets today. Um, our copy incorporates the goals, objectives, and governance as written in the conditions of participation into the plan. I'll read out our goals, objectives, and governance for us. The goal of the QAPI uh, is to describe the integrated system-wide continuous process of identifying, evaluating, prioritizing, and implementing quality and performance improvement activities throughout the system. Our objective through continuous collection and analysis of quality indicators and data, self-audits, staff, patient, resident, and family input, performance improvement action plans and corrective action plans will be created to appropriately remedy and change processes, operations and services in ways that will ultimately improve patient care and outcomes on a sustainable basis. Our governance. Quality and Safety Committee or QSC is responsible for the oversight of the QAPI plan through its periodic review of the program. QSC is also responsible for ensuring that clear expectations for safety are established and communicated hospital-wide, as well as allocating adequate resources to carry out the functions of, of the QAPI program requirements. In the post-acute setting, QAPI has oversight from facility leadership with interdisciplinary input. The focus of the QAPI conditions of participation is to determine whether a hospital has an effective ongoing system in place for identifying problems, and is taking actions to remedy its identified problem areas with follow-up to determine effectiveness. Our key activities are prioritized to meet this objective and assure efforts to promote the patient safety uh, and to reduce harm. So here's a list of our updated key activities. Some uh, ones to point out are continuous survey readiness, uh, just culture methodology, um, proactive risk assessments, quality assurance monitoring, root cause analyses, root cause investigations, um, and validating metric development and data interpretation. The QAPI Conditions of Participation Interpretive Guidance emphasizes the vital role hospital leadership plays in advancing sustained program for improvement throughout each organization. A component of, the successful, uh, of a successful ex execution of a hospital QAPI program requires engagement by the hospital's governing body. Leadership oversight in the development and ongoing planning of a hospital's quality activities is essential. This includes ensuring that clear expectations for safety are established and communicated hospital-wide. Our governance structure defines how quality activities are made visible and transparent. Those key activities will report through our governance structure, where QPSC, this committee, is the overarching body which will receive quality activities. HS promotes engagement and governance by reporting out all QAPI activities through the designated committees and work groups. Displayed is our current governance structure, um, and it does show QPSC as one of the overarching governing bodies uh, with response to our QAPI. Governance, so QPSC is a committee of the Board of Trustees responsible for an effective quality and performance improvement plan throughout the system. QSC, committee for each licensed entity responsible for the quality and performance improvement activities of that entity. The medical staff, the chief medical officer in collaboration of the chief of staff is responsible for leadership and oversight of care provided by the medical staff, such as peer review committees. And then our executive leadership team, uh, responsible for strategizing system-wide uh, improvement initiatives and ensuring alignment and feedback through governance. The selection of metrics is based on our quality of care pillar, which illustrates our efforts to monitor safe, timely, effective, efficient, equitable, and patient-centered care that's accessible to all. 
This year, we've also developed a quality roadmap. The roadmap outlines our plan to implement strategies towards meeting our goals in alignment with the strategic plan. Note that equity is a primary focus within the quality roadmap. The selection of metrics is prioritized within the True North metric dashboard, which we just saw, um, and that True North metric dashboard helps AHS strategize and visualize our progress towards meeting these organization-wide goals. The QAP includes a TNM to help strategize improvements, adopting the Institute of Medicine's framework, STEEP, which I mentioned. Um, and again, we are including equity uh, as one of the six quality domains found within that STEEP methodology. Also included are metrics to follow up uh, physician and staff experience, as well as sustainability. The True North metric dashboard is our strategy for focusing on priority quality and patient safety initiatives. We have the True North metric dashboard, uh, quality and performance improvement projects, contracted services are also to be monitored, and specific performance improvement projects, such as the CLABC or county teams. Equity, again, because equity uh, has been added as a quality domain by the Joint Commission, we are determined to provide care that does not vary in its quality due to a patient's personal characteristics, such as gender, ethnicity, geographic location, or socioeconomic status. Equity considerations will be applied to all quality assurance and performance improvement activities. This table helps us ask the right questions uh, to consider equity. This table contains some equity considerations when designing and conducting uh, performance improvement projects. The performance improvement projects will be chartered uh, by QSC. Progress and results for any of these projects will, re will be reported to QSC and or the MEC, Medical Executive Committee. The quality department is ultimately responsible for driving and monitoring system level initiatives. In addition, the operational leaders, service units and clinical departments can pursue other quality and performance improvement projects based on department identified priorities or safety alerts or any other factors. Below is just a, an example of some of the current performance improvement activities. Some that I would like to call out are uh, population health and care management through the QIP program, uh, prevention of hospital acquired conditions, provider quality monitoring, which includes peer review, OPPE and FPPE, um, root cause analyses, ongoing regulatory compliance, um, purposeful hourly rounding and reducing readmissions. The quality department standard in conducting any PI work is to apply the PDSA cycle for continuous quality improvement. There's also a recommendation to departments participating in any PI activity. The Plan Do Study Act is the standard when it comes to quality assurance and performance improvement. Establishing clear expectations for safety, um, including informing all staff of their specific roles and responsibilities within the QAPI plan is a goal of our QAPI. Clear expectations for safety will also be set and communicated to those providing services under arrangements or contracts and should be documented in the contracts. HS will demonstrate evidence of the QAPI plan through quality insurance activities as reported through governing bodies such as QSC, Quality and Safety Committee. This is just an example of this year's calendar and how we organize which departments or which programs report to QSC and their cadence. This year, we did add a summary of each RCA and four months worth of follow-up for any monitored actions or items identified by that RCA. 
The patient safety program plays a huge role in our QAPI. The patient safety program ensures that quality and safety of patient care is embedded into our everyday operations. This is accomplished through the following activities, incident reports, early identification and investigation, collaboration with regulatory affairs, collaboration with Beta Healthcare, our malpractice carrier, interval rounding and consultation services. Also playing a great role is our regulatory affairs program. It's included in the QAPI um, to ensure that our organization follows all regulatory and accrediting um, requirements. Regulatory affairs program includes assuring compliance with law standards, regulations, uh, which are designed to keep patients safe and provide a safe environment. Managing ongoing regulatory compliance, certifications, licensure at Alameda Health System, such as uh, partnering with CDPH, the county, um, and of course the Joint Commission and CMS. And then providing education, such as survey preparedness, life safety provisions of care, and the environment of care. Last but not least, we did include a celebration of achievements within our QAPI. In acknowledgement of the organization's fantastic work, HS will identify departments each quarter to present the HS Quality and Safety Innovation Award. This award will recognize departments that created and implemented action plans to improve teamwork and safety at AHS. We will also share learnings generated from the selected, selected action plans um, and share them organizationally. Departments are encouraged to submit applications each quarter to qualify for this award. This year's Quality and Safety Innovation Award recipients include Highland Hospital's Inpatient Pharmacy, Highland Hospital's Department of Anesthesia, Highland Hospital's ICU, Alameda Hospital's Stroke Committee, and of course, our Regulatory Affairs team. We've also been awarded various achievements at this year's Beta Healthcare Symposium, demonstrating excellence in quality and patient safety. The Just Culture, of, uh, Just Culture and Culture of Safety Domain Awards included Rapid Event Response and Analysis, OB Quest for Zero Tier 2, and ED Quest for Zero Tier 1. AHS was also the winner of the Beta Healthcare Symposium Jeopardy Challenge. Just an extracurricular activity that um, our AHS representatives shined. Well, that was a Cliff Notes version of our QAPI. Again, it is included in the packet if you'd like to read through it. Um, otherwise, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them now. Or you can also um, email Dr. Tornabene, um, Ana Torres, or myself. Thank you, Ms. Maria. So good, so good to see this. And I think uh, having the governance structure is one thing, but also to see in the in Dr. Lee's, um, you know, the culture of like being able to now do this with rigor and to do this with fidelity, but to see how approval of the professionalism, conduct, and expectations, MSV, and all of that. So like there's so many streams of work that's happening. It's really great to see. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. With that, we'll close item E, and we'll go to the last item, the evening item F. Uh, well worth the wait. Uh, I'd like to, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Benson Chen. He's our Division Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. He's also uh, one of the vice chairs in the Department of Medicine with oversight over patient safety and quality. Dr. Chen uh, has oversight. He's going to give us some a critical care update for, as everyone knows, uh, our ICUs in this hospital are where the six people are in this hospital. Uh, th this is a tough job uh, that Dr. Chen and his team have. So uh, welcome, Dr. Chen. 
Thank you. Um, I'm honored to be uh, here and appreciate being invited to share all of the- Dr. Hard Ken, hold on one second. Is Mike fired up? It didn't sound so fired up. Hello? Okay, yeah, it sounds like okay, it. Okay, Sorry. Um, just wanted to make sure that um, I thank everybody who uh, participated in all this work. This is not, definitely not me. This is the, the ICU team and quality teams, et cetera. Um, is there a way I can show slides? You want me to bring it up? Yeah, that'd be great, because I can't remember what I put on there. <laughs> All right, so um, just a, a brief outline. Um, we're going to just have a high overview of outcomes, uh, review some of the Code Blue Committee results, um, a brief touch on organ donation, which is obviously uh, so important, and then a summary of the additional QI projects that we're focusing on in the ICU. Uh, next slide, please. So um, this is just, a, a, again, a big overview. Um, so ICU readmissions uh, system-wide for, actually this is more um, Highland hospitals at 4.9%, uh, which is below the national benchmark of 5.8%, which is fantastic. Um, I'll go into more details with each of the specific sites uh, in a few slides. Um, acuity of our patients um, within the ICUs at Alameda Health System is, is reasonably high. Um, we have an Apache score of 56. Apache scores are basically a way we calculate how sick a patient is. It takes into account a bunch of physiologic variables and lab tests and uh, underlying medical problems. Um, and so our ICUs um, on average are about 56 and the national benchmark is 54. So we're, we're a good, good uh, severity of illness on ICU. Um, more importantly, our average ICU mortality, um, which is uh, determined by looking at the number of actual deaths compared to what's expected, um, is 0 0.91. So anything below one, we're happy. Um, we'd love it to be zero, but I mean, the reality is that we, we will see um, patient deaths. And this is an improvement over preceding quarters, which is, again, very important. Um, average ICU length of stay, um, this, you know, it's not a great number. Um, the ratio of, again, observed length of stay to expect it is 1.08, but we may have an explanation for it that we are working uh, very, very hard on trying to improve, and we think it's, you know, if we can attribute it to basically how long it takes for us to transfer a patient out of the ICU once they're actually ready to go. Um, big, big thing is uh, ventilator days um, actually decreased to below um, expected for the first time um, since 2017. Um, we are down to 4.6 days on average for a patient who's on a ventilator. Um, and that's fantastic news. And we may have some theories, but again, it's one data point, so I don't want to hang everything on this because you know the third quarter could just uh, it could be embarrassing to see. But um, it's an active project uh, that we're working on. And then top diagnoses uh, for ICU admission at AHS um, in the second quarter of 2023: uh, pulmonary sepsis was the first one, and cardiac arrest was number two. So. It's actually a nice change because it used to be cardiac arrest um, all the time. All right, uh, next slide, please. And, and stop me if you have any questions at any time. Back to Dr. Chen, can we go back just to, to reiterate, just to resummarize for, for the audience? So what this data suggests is our patients are sicker, yet surviving better than national averages. Yes. Okay. All right, next slide, please. Um, so this is just a, a kind of a diagram of all the different Apache scores for the different uh, facilities, Highland, Alameda, San Leandro. Um, and in quarter four of 2022, quarter one of 2023, quarter two of 2023. And you can see that Highland definitely has the higher Apache scores. 
um, and uh, San Leandro has the lowest, uh, but you know, basically two of our facilities are above uh, the national average. Uh, next slide, please. So this is our readmission rate. Um, San Leandro is just amazing. Um, you know, they're below 1% for readmission to their ICU. Wow. Um, Highland, 4.9%. Um, you know, so we're you know, below, we're creeping up a little bit, which is worrisome. Alameda, and again, this is quarter two of 2023. Um, Alameda was um, just unexpectedly high at 9.2%, and they did do a, a deep dive into those um, readmissions. And for whatever reason, hypothermia was the main reason for patients having to be readmitted to the ICU. And it's not necessarily that they're critically ill, but it's just a nursing need. They actually have to have one to you know, one to two or, or one to one nursing to have a bear pugger on. Uh, so it, it is what it is. Um, so I don't think it's because we're um, transferring patients out too early or sick. It's just a, a, a quirk of the system. Any questions on that? And we're, we're going to take over um, our pulmonary critical care group. We'll be taking over at Alameda Hospital starting February 1st of 2024. So again, we're going to be working on all these uh, different metrics and trying to improve them across the board. I have a question. I, uh, the San Diego Hospital, the drop in, uh, in readmissions, sepsis is not a is it, is it, is it, sepsis is one of the, uh, the, the, the most in primary admissions or readmissions? It's primary admissions. All ICU. Yeah, all, all ICU across the, the three. Each. I'll show you in a little bit, a few more slides, like which is the most in each ICU. And I want to say San Leandro is pulmonary substance is the number one. I see. The reason I asked is that in my, my I knew at one point in time San Leandro Hospital had an amazing sepsis program that was kind of the model for all of us. And I was wondering, if, if that is due to the readmission of so there's no correlation there. I mean, it's hard to say. They, they have a sepsis activation program, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, when I'm on service there, I hear it overhead and people are reacting. And I just wandered out to the ER to see what's going on, um, just out of curiosity. But they're, they're very good at what they do. And, you know, I really um, I want to make sure that San Leandro gets the, the kudos that they deserve because they're, they're a fantastic institution. I have a question about uh, the 9.2% and the hypothermia. I mean, what is it? I know you said they did a deep dive. Can you give us like a high level hypothermia? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I wish there was just a single unifying diagnosis all the time. Sepsis is, is one of the things that can cause hypothermia. Um, but, you know, it's there, there's just so many different things. And um, I wasn't part of the uh, deep dive, so I don't know the exact reasons for each of those specific patients. Uh, but they all did fine after rewarming and, and they, were, they were transferred out of the ICU. Dr. Chen, could you give us like a clinical a made up clinical circumstance to kind of illustrate what, what a return for hypothermia might be? Can I give one other theory yeah, yeah. that I have that might not be relevant, but I'm curious about the data set. And I know that Alameda Hospital has historically been 50% registered, and I know that those numbers can also change over time. Um, and I'm, you know, like, Alameda and Howard Highland and San Leandro typically do not have that any reliance on registry nursing staff. And I'm curious in, your, in the deep dive, how do you take into account staff? Is it taken into account? You know, everybody talks about workflows and how to do a holistic search. Are you only looking at medical interventions? Are you considering personnel? Like, how does that 
become accounted for, might that be a possibility? It's definitely a possibility. Um, I, you know, again, I, I apologize that I wasn't part of the deep dive, so I, I can't give you more details than that. Um, we do have another slide that uh, raises, you know, concerns in my mind at least about staff shortages. Uh, but for, for this particular one, I don't have an answer, but I'm more than happy to go back and try to figure it out. It's interesting, interesting, Trustee Cena. If you take this is specific ED, but if you look at our True North Scorecard, True North Metro Scorecard before the facilities, San Leandro and Elmer are actually doing better on the very same outcomes that we measure in every single one of our facilities. So it would be interesting to see and try to discern if staffing has any impact on any of this. I don't think we've done that. I mean, I'm really curious, you know, the, the as we talk about all the workflow process improvements, throughput <coughs> measures, you know, people have a lot of, when I say people, some staff have asked outside questions about, well, you know, we feel like many interventions are being uh, like done without a full comprehensive approach. Is the union being contacted? Are all the staff being, ta you know, taken into consideration? I think the holistic approach that people are hoping for, um, and I'm just curious if this included that. You know, I know many interventions are time consuming, it's hard to include everything, and the information is there, yeah. if we look for it. Dr. Subramani. <laughs> general patient population at Alameda is a little bit older, and we often see more temperature regulation issues in older patients, so I'm curious if that may be the, one of the variables that is responsible for this. It's definitely, I mean, again, there's so many different potential contributors, and yeah, and then to try to address uh, Dr. Paquette's uh, question about, you know, a scenario, um, I mean, yeah, it's usually like the Unfortunately, frail, elderly, malnourished uh, individual, maybe the blankets weren't on, it's a little colder, they get cold, they get a temperature, then the question is, is it sepsis, is it exposure, is it, you know, hypothyroidism, is it you know, some other metabolic or nutritional deficiency? So the list is pretty broad. And then they have to go back to the unit. Then they have and to go back to the unit, and then you settle them down, you stabilize them, and then they go back out. So, but, but again, I, I, I apologize for not I noticed it was a little longer than normal to get people out of ice transition out to what's being done to transition to other other sites. Yeah. So I can yeah, hold that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, but great question. Next slide. Uh, so mortality trends. Um, so sorry, I, I wish I could blame this on reading glasses, but I think it's just my vision. Mm -hmm. um, so Highland uh, mortality ratio is um, looking, if I'm looking at the right number, um, actually below um, the uh, uh, one. Uh, again, like we talked about, so um, 0.91, I think. If I'm looking at that right, um, so you know everything is is at least from the Highland side is going in the right direction. There is an uptrend in San Leandro and um, Alameda, so I, I'm a little bit uh, wary of what the next quarter results will show, but hopefully we'll stay below one. 
Um, hospital mortality ratio, again, is, is kind of fluctuating, but um, staying around one or below one, which is you know, obviously where we want. Um, next slide, please. <clears throat> so this is um, talking about the length of stay. So if you look at our ICU length of stay ratio, there's a, a definite trend downwards. Um, and then if you look at the top right graph, um, the, uh, is that purple? Um, so, sorry, color issues too. So um, you can see that with each quarter, uh, we've had a, a nice drop um, with a slight uptrend in quarter two of 2023. Uh, and then the yellow is actually the time from when the order is placed for transfer out of the ICU to when the patient actually leaves. And so you can see that in quarter one and quarter two of 2023, that time was 1.46 days and 1.09 days. Um, so, you know, there, there is a little bit of improvement and, and I'm hoping that that is um, a trend, um, but there's a tremendous amount of work that's going into that and, and I'll jump into that in, in further slides. So um, any questions about this? Okay, next slide, please. Um, so this is one of the reasons why I think we are actually shortening our ICU length of stay is that we are starting to decrease ventilator uh, duration. So you can see that the uh, red hash mark line is what is expected for ventilator days. And if you go back, the, the last time we were below expected was in 2017. Um, and so we are finally getting back below. And again, single data point. So hopefully this is a, a, a consistent trend and not just a, a blip, but, but it is encouraging because the last, you know, over the last three quarters, there's just downwards uh, uh, drop in, in that number. Um, and I'll go into um, potentially why. So next slide. So decreasing ICU length of stay in ventilator days, um, I, I'm hoping that this is because we've been very, very aggressive about implementing the what's called the ABCDEF bundle. So A stands for assessing, preventing, and managing pain. B is uh, both spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials. So spontaneous awakening trials, we just shut off sedatives, shut off narcotics, and we just wait for the patient to wake up to better understand what do they actually need. Um, and spontaneous breathing trials is making sure that every day we give a patient, no matter, you know, well, I mean, they have to meet certain parameters, but we put them on a trial to see, can you breathe on your own? Um, so that has been shown to decrease the amount of time that people are on ventilators. Um, part C um, is choice of analgesia and sedation. So we've really been focusing on uh, non-narcotic analgesics. Um, delirium, uh, assess, prevent, and manage. So if you have very delirious patients, unfortunately, if they're on ventilators, they end up getting sedated. So that ends up, you know, they get sedated, so they have to be on the ventilator. And if they're on the ventilator, they're delirious, agitated, so they have to be sedated. So it becomes this really kind of a circular argument that creates uh, prolongs length of stay. Um, early mobility and exercise, you've been hearing a lot about this. This is huge, right? Because if you can get a patient out of bed, then you've already addressed all the parts ahead, right? You've been focusing on uh, making sure that their pain is adequately controlled. You've made sure that they're um, minimized on the amount of sedatives that they're on. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, when I um, started here, uh, my first thing was forcing people to get patients out of bed. And it, it, it was a very, very difficult challenge uh, to change the culture, but it's happening. We had our first patient um, on a ventilator with a breathing tube in the mouth, walking down the hallway. And we had the first patient with an EVD in um, so, you know, the, the drain in the brain, um, actually out of bed and walking down the hallway. So these are things that, that are happening nationwide. So I'm glad that we're actually achieving this. And, and this is 
a huge amount of effort. Um, and it is, uh, and then sorry, the final point is uh, family engagement and empowerment. It's something that you think would be just common sense, but it's not, you know, in the IC, it's very easy to forget this, right? Oh, we're so, you know, taking care of such sick patients, you know, family, we don't have time to talk to you. But it's so important to have families there um, helping with, you know, patients with delirium and agitation, helping them to reorient familiar faces, familiar voices, um, all helps. So again, this is not something I could do on my own. This is a huge, huge amount of uh, individuals and effort by so many different people. And I just want to make sure that everyone is recognized and I apologize for anyone that left off. Um, next slide. Dr. Chen, on that, on that, can you tell us what, what the family, to item F, what is our family policy for letting family members come into the ICU? Well, they are restricted in the sense of uh, times that they're allowed to visit, yeah. but we want them there. Uh, we want them at the bedside. We welcome them on rounds. Um, we actually will ask, ask them to participate in helping us mobilize patients as well. So that way, you know, if the, by the time the patients get home, family members may have picked up like techniques on how to move patients safely, which you know, in theory, hopefully would actually help to reduce the risk of readmission long-term, but that's never been studied. Uh, so, Yes. It's a big deal. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, next slide. Sorry, I know I'm going slower than I promised I would. Um, improving patient throughput. So back to, to um, Mr. Frasky's question. So um, the issue, Highland, we're constantly overflowing with patients. You guys hear the red uh, surge, surge alerts, whatever they're called, um, uh, every day uh, from the emergency department, while San Leandro and Alameda Hospital are chronically underfilled. And so what we've been trying to do is, is really take a systems approach towards um, taking care of patients here. We're admitting patients to Alameda hospital system, uh, hospitals uh, based on their clinical needs and personal preferences. We never wanna force someone to go to a different hospital if they don't want to, but if they don't really need um, specialists here, then why not offer them the opportunity to get a bed um, versus sitting in the emergency um, and it also goes to, you know, for patients who are chronically critically ill, so patients who are requiring chronic vent support and chronic uh, critical care support, you know what, San Leandro is an amazing hospital ICU for you if that's your situation. It's a quieter environment, nurses are really sweet, there's free parking. I mean, it's just, you know, a nicer environment for patients to go, and I personally love it there when I work there. Um, this is... Um, again, a huge effort by um, a, the Throughput Steering Committee, and I listed um, all the different individuals who've been a part of it, including Mr. Kratzky. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, again, I, I apologize for anyone I left out. And then I also want to emphasize that there was a Doctor of the Day pilot um, that was uh, organized by uh, Dr. Subramanian um, and others, uh, which really has been uh, instrumental, or at least helped us show what we can do by having a physician leader in that process to help move patients from one side to another. Okay, any questions on that? Great. All right, next slide. Sorry, I know you guys are all no, 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 dying to go home. Yeah, this is important. Um, so the other things that we're doing, um, improving interdisciplinary communication. You know, without doubt, anytime you take care of a patient in the ICU, there are so many um, organ systems that are struggling that we really work together with all the different specialists, with nursing, with respiratory therapy, with physical therapy, with pharmacy. So super important to have all these different individuals participating on rounds. Granted, we, we are limited based on you know, who can show up, but we do offer them every single day in every ICU. Um, and it really attempts to make sure that we address all the different aspects of a patient's care. 
And it really helps to foster that concept of teamwork and collaboration across disciplines. This is not just about physicians. This is not just about nursing. This is not just about respiratory therapy. It's not everybody. Because if we don't all work together to take care of that patient, that patient's not going to do well. Um, rounding sheets. So I, I just want to specifically call out Tiffany Lee, uh, one of our anesthesiologists and critical care uh, physicians. She put together um, a, a rounding sheet that we use at the bedside. Um, again, it just kind of focuses on all the different things that we want to pay attention to. Does the Foley catheter need to stay in? Does the patient need to have a central line still? Are we you know, addressing to make sure that these things are clean? Are we mobilizing patients out of bed? And then also providing a daily uh, goals so that way the uh, patients, uh, families, and also providers can see what are we trying to accomplish today? Um, and to, again, Dr. Lee's credit, she's now transitioning this to EPIC. So she's been working with um, the EPIC builders to actually create a rounding sheet that will be used within EPIC itself. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. I, I just wish I was smarter than, and remember what I wrote. Okay. Um, and so again, I, I just, and then the final one is, um, you know, communication, you know, patients in the ICU, they're there 24 hours a day. And so we wanted to make sure that the physicians who were taking care of the patients at night, when the day teams went home, actually knew who the patients were. So we instituted uh, with Dr. Besh's, um, you know, assistance and support, um, basically evening rounds. Uh, between the intensivist and the nocturnist to make sure that there's a handoff. So it's not like you just show up in the ICU at night and like, what do you mean by this person's sick? I have no idea who this person is. Mm -hmm. So they, they at least understand what to be looking out for and try to anticipate problems and, and intervene uh, early. Any questions about that? All right, next slide. Um, so these are the just kind of data about uh, outcomes with the, the specific uh, indications for admission. So. Um, Highland, uh, cardiac arrest, um, I guess cardiac arrest is still number one. Sorry, I thought it was number two. 54% um, is the uh, mortality expected uh, nationally. We're at 59%, so uh, a little higher than we would like. I'm going to show you some slides about what we're doing to work on that. Um, sepsis, pulmonary sepsis uh, for Highland, again, our mortality is a little higher than expected at 36.6%. Um, and, and again, we're working on that. Alameda Hospital and San Leandro Hospital. They're the ones with sepsis, uh, pulmonary sepsis is their um, number one diagnosis. Um, their mortality uh, for San Leandro is, is quite good, um, below national uh, benchmark. Alameda is a little bit higher, um, but you know one thing to know about Alameda Hospital is that they tend to admit a lot of patients from chronic vent units, and those individuals already have a very high mortality. So that could be part of the explanation, but we'll know more once we are actually uh, physically staffing that. Um, and then, um, Alameda Health System as a general um, admission is sepsis pulmonary is the number one reason. Um, again, we're slightly above um, national predicted mortality um, and cardiac arrest is number two for the entire system. Um, and again, we're, we're above what's expected and I'll go into um, ways that we're addressing that. Um, questions? Next slide. Um, so just a, a quick uh, discussion about Code Blue Committee, cardiac arrest. Um, so this is the trend of, of cardiac arrests that we see uh, within the hospital. Uh, so the blue line is uh, cardiac arrests uh, outside of the ICU, and the other color line is uh, out, you know, within the ICU. Um, there was a, a bump up in the January to March of 2023, which isn't necessarily unexpected, but it's, it's a little bit uh, concerning to see. And I'll tell you what we're doing to address that. Um, and the slight trend up um, is also concerning 
um, with regard to out-of-ICU uh, cardiac arrests. And I'll tell you what we're doing to address that as well. Um, next slide, please. The good news is that um, hospital mortality um, associated with cardiac arrest um, is, is, has come down, at least in the, the last quarter. Again, single data point. I don't know what this means, but my hope is that the things that we're putting into place are actually having a, an effect. So um, we, had, we definitely had an increase in cardiac arrests in the January to March, as we saw on the other slide. Um, we're back down to where we are at baseline um, between April and June of, of 2023. Uh, but the good news is that the mortality was um, at 50% um, compared to 80-90%. Next slide. So what are we trying to do? Um, so one thing that, that we noticed is that there are a lot of patients suffering cardiac arrest because we kept delaying intubation. And for whatever reason, there was a stigma against intubating patients. People felt like they accomplished something if they didn't have to intubate the patient overnight. And so we spent a lot of effort trying to re-educate people, telling them, you know what, if you intubate a patient, that's not a failure. It's actually a good thing because if you, you know, sitting there using salvage therapies, you sort of fool yourself into believing that you're helping the patient. But in reality, you just intubate the patient, you stabilize them, then you can focus on getting them better. Um, the question about these out-of-ICU cardiac arrests, the trend that we were seeing over the last number of quarters, the concern that we that this raised for us is with the constant overflow of patients in the emergency department, where we starting to compromise on what we felt were appropriate reasons for admitting patients to non-ICU level beds. And so um, Dr. Ty Elliott is reviewing um, all of our out-of-ICU out cardiac arrests to make sure that these triage decisions were appropriate um, and not made out of desperation. Um, the third thing, which is exciting and interesting, I'm not sure what to do with it yet, though, is that there is um, a deterioration index that comes with epic. And what it does is it, it takes into a, um, account a number of different factors like vital signs and labs, so sort of like Apache score, and it gives you a score. And, if, and we've set a score of 60 or higher um, predicts um, that a patient may have a decompensation event requiring a rapid response call or a code blue event in the next 72 hours. The problem with this is that there's actually a high false positivity and a high false negative rate. So, you know, it, it could, so I'm going, when I have time, I'm gonna go back and review this because what we don't wanna do is implement um, a new process that's gonna require a lot of work and then maybe not have much of, a, of a, an effect. Um, so anyway, um, a lot of people to acknowledge for, um, you know, this work and uh, I hope I didn't leave anybody out. Of course. The previous thing you said about the Ty Elliott's going to do some study. I'd love to get a report back on. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, okay, next slide, please. Um, so, this is neurologic outcome at discharge. So, um, you know, the first three quarters is 100%, they were basically normal. And then suddenly, the quarter that we reduced mortality by to you know 50%, we now have patients who are being discharged who are not completely quote-unquote normal. There's some limitation in their cerebral function. Um, in some ways, I, I, I think that's actually um, encouraging because it means that people that may have expired in prior quarters, we're actually saving, but we're actually, we are leaving them with some disability. So let me go to the next slide. Um, so this, this actually, um, Kind of dovetails with this other thing that we were that was brought to our attention and this is uh, dr singh from the emergency department 
Um, I think this is the CARES report. And what was frustrating or, or concerning about this is that it showed that we have a higher more in-hospital mortality for patients who suffer cardiac arrests than other hospitals within the state of California and then nationally. And then when you look at one of the things that, that we offer patients who've had cardiac arrest is targeted temperature management. And this has really been shown to improve neurologic recovery after cardiac arrest. And according to this data, we were barely implemented, which is crazy. I mean, that's, that's not acceptable. So um, Dr. Elliott, um, Dr. Goss, uh, Dr. Singh, Dr. Anderson, Dr. Troskaya, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, we all sat down and we basically um, went through uh, a couple of years of our data, uh, sorry, 2022 cardiac arrest data. And we realized that actually there were a number of patients who failed to achieve targeted temperature management. And this was because of studies that were published in 2021 and 2020 that suggested that all we had to do was keep them afebrile for 72 hours and we would have similar outcomes. But by doing so, it kind of took the threshold at which we would intervene to a higher temperature. And so patients were actually becoming febrile. And being febrile in the post-arrest situation is the worst thing that can happen. And so this made us decide to go back and rewrite the entire to uh, target temperature management protocol. And we're gonna go back to targeting 36 degrees Celsius. Um, we also realized that a lot of the equipment that we have in the hospital for doing this was not functional. And so we are purchasing new equipment, the hospital, um, Dr. Frasky included, really helped us purchase this new um, Thermoguard, uh, which is an intravascular cooling device. It's amazing. Um, at my prior institution, we use this. You can cool people to 36 degrees within an hour. Um, you just put a catheter into, into a central vein, and as the blood runs past it, it gets cooled to the targeted temperature, and it's the craziest thing. You touch the person, they feel warm, but their core body temp is actually where you want it. So the blood perfusing the brain is keeping the brain at 36 degrees. So... Lots of people to thank uh, for all of these efforts, and I hope that we can give you better data um, over the next few quarters. Uh, questions? I mean, I was actually going to ask this about the hypothermia, whether or not you're cooling people down, but it sounds like you weren't, so it's not necessarily related to the old set. Okay, um, next slide, please. Sorry, it's dragging on. Organ donation. Um, so the, the thing to just say here is that um, you know, we have very few potential organ donors. Um, we do try to capitalize on that as much as possible. Our organ conversion rate, which is how many people who are potential donors actually end up donating, um, is variable. Um, so we, we continue to work with our um, uh, donor network on this. They actually have an individual who's stationed in our ICU. Um, so that person helps us to make sure that we capture every person who could potentially be an organ donor. And um, I want to, you know, obviously thank the individuals who've been involved with the, um, the donor walk. Uh, that's, you know, obviously such a critical uh, thing to do to really support and thank uh, families and the patients for, for what they're doing. Um, next slide. Um, okay, so let's go to CLABSI and we're almost done. So um, this is uh, Highlands CLABSI or central line usage per unit. Um, so unfortunately, all I can really cap for is the, is the ICU. Um, so the ICU um, uh, usage of central lines is, is actually pretty good. Um, it's close to about one is where we want it. Um, we do have to work on the SDU and the wards. There's an upwards trend, um, but you know, obviously this is a work in progress. Uh, next slide. So this is our infection rate uh, for 2022. 
uh, you can see that we had a lot of central line infections, uh, which is obviously not acceptable. Uh, this affects uh, CMS, this affects our um, you know, patients. Uh, so th this is not anyone's, uh, in anyone's best interest. So huge amounts of efforts have been put into this. Um, Dr. Ty Elliott uh, has been the, the physician champion on this. If we go to the next slide. And you can see in 2023, um, even though the bars are much higher, it's actually at one as opposed to you know, upwards of six. Um, so we're not where we want to be. Um, we're still working on it. We have uh, active groups uh, um, you know, every, every two weeks um, meeting about this. Um, next slide, please. Um, and so with regard to Clabsy and Caudi, um, we are, it's a multi-pronged approach. We're focusing on, um, you know, do we even need the catheter, right? Um, can we ensure that when it, we put it in that it's entered or placed sterilely? Uh, can we ensure that we maintain sterility while we use it? Um, and then can we get it out as quickly as possible? Um, we are focusing on education for physicians, for nurses. Um, we're uh, monitoring for indications, like do you still need the catheter? And this is multidisciplinary rounding sheets. Um, monitoring for appropriate device care and management. Um, basically, numerous individuals reaching out to care teams to say, hey, doesn't look like you need this anymore. Can we take it out? Um, we, uh, Dusty uh, Gilliland, one of our uh, nursing leaders, is uh, putting together a uh, nursing driven protocol for fully removal. Um, we're coming up with alternatives, so non-invasive uh, uh, urinary drainage systems. Uh, and we're drilling down on every single Clavsy and Claudi for uh, opportunities for improvement. One of which uh, Dr. Uh, Elliot noticed, which is that we were instilling TPN through standard triple lumen catheters and not focusing on having a dedicated line, which is a risk factor in and of itself for collapsing development. So this is now going through the approval process to switch over to single lumen pick lines, dedicated, and you know, so I think we're going to get some uh, further improvement from that. So again, lots of people to acknowledge, and I apologize for anyone that I left off. Next slide. Um, sepsis harm reduction team. So um, as you discussed, um, sepsis is a huge contributor to patient morbidity and mortality. Um, CMS guidelines uh, recommends a, a sepsis bundle management, which is early antibiotics, early fluids, um, and uh, lactate reassessment and uh, volume uh, resuscitation reassessment. But you know, there's been questions about the effectiveness of this bundle. Um, some studies have shown like benefit, some studies have shown no improvement, and some studies have shown harm. So um, myself, Dr. Uh, Buzarif, um, and a number of others uh, decided to look into this. We did a retrospective um, uh, analysis of 200 patients admitted to this uh, island in 2021 and 2022. And we found that overall there was no benefit from using the bundle, which is crazy. But there has to be some benefit, right? Because fluids, antibiotics seems to make sense. And so what we did find is that if patients were very sick, so if their Apache score was at least 25 or higher, they had a very clear mortality benefit. So super exciting. Um, we took this, submitted it as an abstract to the American Thoracic Society meeting. So I can't say more than that because um, of whatever reasons that they have. But again, so um, we're, we're working hard to try to you know, improve the biggest reason for um, admission and, and uh, death in, in most hospitals. Uh, but uh, at least the second major cause for us here. Um, next slide, hopefully the last one. I just make one comment. Really happy to see that you guys submitted the abstract because I keep hearing you talk about reviewing the research, looking at the data, checking out the numbers, and I'm like, it yeah. sounds like Highland is a, AHS is a research institution, and you know I want to make sure that you guys are getting all the 
kudos and credit you deserve. It's, and doing the publishing that keeps you relevant. Yeah, I mean, with Dr. Supermanian, this is one of our major pushes, is to try to get as much published as we can, because it's time that AHS is on the map. Um, next slide, please. Uh, so adequate access to nutrition. Um, so basically, a lot of patients at AHS didn't have enteral access. Um, there were issues with uh, feeding tube placements that could only be done in the interventional radiology suite or in uh, the OR. So we were able to, um, with the support of the hospital administration, um, purchase uh, imaging-guided uh, feeding tube placement systems, core tracks. Um, so these have been um, uh, put into place. Nurses have been trained. So this is now starting. Uh, so we are finally able to do this. And then uh, Dr. Lee um, has been uh, very, very um, integral in trying to advocate for a new system so that we're adjusting our NPO requirements for surgeries and procedures. So it's trying to limit the amount of, of situations where we have to make patients NPO because you could have patients NPO for days waiting for procedure after procedure after procedure. So this is something that is, again, so vitally important for our patients to, uh, to have better outcomes. Um, hoping that's it. Next slide. Yes. All right. Um, sorry, I went way over. Um, any questions? <laughs> what are you way to enter here? This is this is amazing. Thank you for that. And I mean, so many of the guiding principles and the protocols could be widely across other parts of MedSearch too. So is there a kind of learning that's happening through? <coughs> Assuming that all of this is in the ICUs of all of our facilities, right? Alameda Hospital. They're, all, they're all starting at Highland and <coughs> spreading out to the different facilities. And it'll become much easier to do that um, starting in February when the pulmonary <coughs> here will be over in Alameda as well. But we are um, working on getting these things implemented over at San Leandro. Mobility has already been implemented. We're amazing. They just, as soon as I walked in and said, I want these patients out of bed, turn around, they're all out of bed. So it's like they, they just are fantastic. So, yes, the goal is to, to spread from sort of the um, trial site in the ICU because we can have a very controlled environment. Um, so, from ICU to the floors, and then also on the other systems. And then the second question, uh, which was my first question, is how is some of these protocols, and I think the principles around it about like the ABCD, a blood bundle, and so many other things would be so beneficial to the other parts of medicine as well, right? So uh, how uh, you're doing amazing work, and are there avenues through um, QRC and others where this is being shared and being yeah, definitely. I mean, I know that mobility is spreading to the floors here at, at Highland. Um, I know that uh, you know, we were just on uh, MOR today. There was a lot of discussion about you know how do we mobilize patients um, because you know it also improves uh, pressure injuries. Um, so you know, getting patients out of bed, walking, um, etc. So um, yes, it, it is spreading. Uh, it just you know it's a culture change, so it's going to take some time to work. There's a lot of people who are really engaged around this, um, and thanks to your leadership too, Dr. Chen's really come in with a lot of prior experience and wisdom and brings in a really nice combination of evidence-based data to really push, and then also a can-do, let's just do it attitude, right? And that is infectious, bringing those two things together. <laughs> <laughs> 
you're saying spread to other parts of uh, our department? I mean, it's just the transparency and like assessing what some of the pain points and problems were. Just it's remarkable. Thank you. And don't don't thank us yet. We gotta make sure that this is actually sustained. Dr. Chen, if you were put in the situation to prioritize an ask list in the interest of improving the care of ICU patients in our system and in North Valley, what would that prioritize and ask list be? Um, we, we really need to have the, the systems approach, um, number one. Uh, because right now we have too many patients who are boarding in the emergency department. Um, the emergency department here is, is well renowned, right? but they're not they're not designed to take care of ICU patients. Um, they're very capable, uh, but it's just not what it's designed for. Uh, so we really need to uh, improve our throughput. And part of it is also recognizing that, um, you know, even though we hold ourselves in such high esteem that we can take care of everyone and anyone, um, if we don't have a bed, we should be trying to move that patient to a system or a different hospital that has a bed. So while we would love to keep the patient here, if they can be better served somewhere else just because they have a bed somewhere else, then that's what we have to do. So, so number one is system bed management. Yep. Can I say it? What yes. two and three? Oh, not fair. <laughs> he's gotten everything he's wanted. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> my job yeah, is give people, is I give people, I give people the venue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, you know, uh, Mr. Kratzky, Dr. I mean, everyone, uh, Mr. Jackson has been so generous. Um, uh, you know, Jeanette's been great with helping us promote our different programs. Um, you know, I, I think it's really um, the next step is is um, basically trying to uh, ensure that we have a stable uh, nursing staff for ICU, um, that we move further and further away from reliance on travelers, uh, which I think everyone uh, has a goal for everyone. So number two is stable staffing. Yep, stable staffing. Stable nurse staffing. So one, system bed management. Two, stable nurse staffing. Madam, give me a shot. Go for it. <laughs> My third would be care management. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> because on the back end, right, right, if we can't get our patients on the med surge floors out in a, with a safe discharge yeah. plan, we can't get our patients out of the ICU to the med surge floors. Mm -hmm. I never think about that. Systems, systems. So important that if we, we have a transfer and all of that, you know, and yet in the ED throughput, sometimes that we are thinking Highland and what do we do here and not always thinking about like, wait, there are two other underutilized spaces and how are we thinking about that? So thank you for that. I hope our, this is the system's lens is really. Thank you for that great report, Dr. Ken. Sorry to. No, this don't be sorry. It's all on me. I'm the I, I hold the gavel, so I'm I'm mismanaging our time by 45 minutes. That close. Doctor, for the deep dive for TNM deep dive for January. Hospital throughput will be our deep dive. System swipe. That is correct. Thank you. Yes. So that would close item F. Thank you, Doctor Chen. Get home to your family. Uh, item G, information plan encounter. We're gonna we just talked about that. We're gonna put a deep dive into system throughput, which is a which is a, a chronic issue for us. Um, item H is the written report, which is in your packet of one that's post to queue. And with that, we close our open session. Um, and uh, I'm like 45 minutes behind. So that's on me.
We did, but not, okay. not as much as I forecasted. Uh, Council. The quality committee of the board will now go to closed session to consider the items as stated on the agenda. Thank you. <laughs> All right, everyone, we've just come back uh, from closed session. Council. The quality committee of the board met in closed session and approved the medical staff report that no other reportable actions taken. With that, we close uh, the November 29th QPSC, the last uh, uh, official board meeting of the year. Everyone, have a great evening.